think it was a little doom and gloom on the podcast last week. Neither of us really believed that United would win, but win United did. Champions, champions. Wait a minute, that's not what's happened, is it? We've not won the league quite yet. No. Apparently it was our cup final, so you say some cheeky git Arsenal fans. I had to remind a few, uh, personally in some circumstances, that one side here were champions and won the league by 11 points last season, and the other side hadn't won a thing for a decade. Yes, well, quite. But they had been elected champions of England and they looked anything but. I think, listen, it was... Robert Mugabe election, was that? (laughs) It was a game of very definitely, without question, two halves, right? One was not very good and the other was absolutely awful. I really disagree. I really disagree. I thought we were really good in the first half. I thought we looked like we could have beaten pretty much anyone at that point. It was the second half where things started to fall apart quite so dramatically. Yeah, look, for the opening 10 minutes... I might agree with you. United were bright, attacked, looked. There was a very clear game plan, which was to ensure that Arsenal had very little time on the ball in the central midfield and then get it wide and get crosses in. And United did that very successfully for a period of time. Of course, scored from the set piece, which would have been part of the thinking too, although... I'm not quite sure too many people would have thought that Robin Van Persie would tower above all to score. I'm being a little cheeky, but I think the game was pretty low quality all in all. Uh, United had a very specific game plan here, which was to disrupt Arsenal's rhythm. That was game plan number one. Game plan number two was to disrupt Arsenal's rhythm. And that's the same for game plan number three as well. And look, it worked. You know what? It isn't that far away from the game plan that Ferguson has used so successfully over the last six or seven years. We worked out if you get in and around Arsenal, if you break up their play, if you uh, are very tight at the back and then break that you win the game and uh, and Moyes has recognised that. The consequence, of course, was uh, a very low number of passes actually reached their man from United, part of the reason being that the ball was hoofed long rather a lot. More as a percentage of total passes than Stoke City this weekend, if you just want a comparison there. And, you know, I, I think for the most part, uh, the United fans are delighted with the victory, not least because everyone thought United would lose. We would also like to see United play good football, so let's hope this is not the pattern for the rest of the season. So I've got lots of nice things to say about United's performance, which I'm going to save for a minute when everyone needs cheering up after we've, you know, gone to town on the things that were not so good uh, about the performance. I think the fact that Arsenal were really not at the races was evident and Wenger said they were nervous. Lots of talk about illness going around the camp and actually that kind of would make sense of a lot of what happened in that game. And in the end, we were lucky to come out of that game with a win. They really should have done something with the possession they had in the second half. And late on in the second half, the ball just kind of nipped straight past our 60-yard box, untroubled by defender or striker. Could very, very, very easily have gone a, a different direction, a demoralising home point, sort of two points lost really late on in the game, in a game that at one point we did seem in complete control of. Yeah, uh, entirely, yeah. Look, um, I I don't want to sound like United are on a downer here. I'm on a downer about United here because I'm not really. There were lots of positive things about this. The amount of chances Arsenal created were very, very few for the significant amount of possession they had. A couple of crosses late on from Bakari Sanya that could have caused damage and didn't. But for the most part, Arsenal played in front of United. United were very compact in the back four. Phil Jones, when he played in midfield, was a terror, ran around. Another bombastic performance from him right across midfield, did very sensible things, especially defensively and up front. You know, Rooney and Van Persie can always get you a goal. I thought an excellent performance from Rooney as well. You know, he's uh, really the man who gave United lots of energy in forward areas. So I'm not being totally negative about the performance. I just thought it was very low quality. And if it was a one-off 
fine, but I think it's something of a pattern this season. United are careless with possession. For the most part, you get punished against the better teams for that. They weren't on Sunday, uh, which is very good because it means United are right back in the title race. Absolutely. I've just been having a little flick round player dashboards when you uh, while you were talking there. Not that I wasn't listening because, of course, I was. But one thing that's interesting is you talked about Johnny Evans having a mistake in him every game. And he played a pretty mistake-free game in that game, I thought. Yeah, I thought he was excellent. I thought the whole of the back four were very good. I mean, even Chris Smalling talked about him not being uh, very good at the attacking side right back. And I, I think that was still his failing. He got into the right positions and he just doesn't really have the technique to make the most of those attacking positions. But defensively, Smalling was excellent. And so was Evans. And uh, Vidic, after praising him two weeks running, perhaps was the worst of United's back four or five. It's funny, talking of player dashboards, essentially in his own half, just lots of green, which means defensive things done well. And then in the opposition half, just lots of red on Chris Smalling's dashboard because lots and lots and lots of missed crosses and passes given away. And it it didn't go too well uh, in, in the attacking sense. But I think anyone having a go at him for not being good enough as an attacking fallback, that's because he's just not an attacking fallback. David De Gea would not make a very good right back and nor does Chris Smalling because that's not their job, you know. But he was brilliant defensively and uh, made a really key block right at the end of the game, didn't he? We've got a new question. Nobody's asked us this on the Twitter questions this week, which is unusual. We could really legitimately say what's Phil Jones's best position in that game against Arsenal because I thought he was really good in midfield and then really good in central defence. Yeah, I mean, it was an all-action performance in midfield, wasn't it, from him? I mean, look, there are definite failings to his game in midfield. He doesn't always know the right kind of positional play. He doesn't always get in the right position to receive the ball. In fact, most of the time he doesn't. And his passing isn't always top-notch. But on this occasion, he had a very, very good game. He had a very, very good game when he went back into the back four as well, right, when Vidic was replaced. So he's really maturing. Let's hope this curve of progress uh, continues because, you know, I have loads of faith in Jones. I think his natural talent is absolutely outstanding. He could be anything he wants to be. I hope it's a centre-back because I think he'll potentially make a world-class centre-back. I don't think he's ever going to make a world-class midfielder. No, and I hope he gets enough time at centre-back to become the world-class centre-back whilst occasionally doing that job in central midfield because it is really exciting to watch uh, when, when he does his crazy bombastic stuff. You know, he really does remind me of Brian Robson and it's like he plays kind of almost exactly like Brian Robson played until the ball's in the final third and he hasn't got it there. Robson had an incredible composure around the box, didn't he? Jones definitely doesn't have that. No, he doesn't. Uh, He was aided, I think, by uh, three Arsenal central midfielders having very, very poor games. I mean, we could attribute praise to Jones and Carrick for disrupting their rhythm and then cleverly when he came into the game as well. But I thought Flamini and Arteta, unusually poor from them, just seemed to be half yard off the pace all the time. Ozil was completely nondescript. Of course, you know, all the jokes flying around about him disappearing and being found in Phil Jones's pocket. Ramsey, who's been Arsenal's best player this season by a country mile, very poor as well. And Carzola, was he even on the pitch? Terrible utterly terrible. I don't know whether it was nerves or or a lack of energy because they were ill and they've played a lot of big games recently, but uh, unusually poor from that selection in midfield. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, talking of poor in midfield, the now injured Michael Carrick having the kind of game that 
the crazy people who really hate Michael Carrick and think he's rubbish. That's the kind of game that they seem to think he has ev- all the time. He really looked out of sorts, so I'm kind of not surprised that there's an injury, really. Well, yes. I mean, he had a Achilles problem there and he's, he's had some injections, so he, he didn't have a good game. He's not really had a good season. Let's let's be honest about this. You know, as uh, big fans of Carrick on the rank cast, I think we have to admit when players we like are not doing well and, and Carrick's not had a good season. Of course, Ferguson said that he starts the season slowly and, and uh, seems to be proven true this one because he has started the last three campaigns rather slowly, so including this one. And his campaign won't really get going until after New Year now. It looks like he's out for six weeks or so. I mean, Achilles problems are, are problems because you constantly use it and if you're not using it it tenses up and goes tight and i definitely know the the problems there and uh, and when that happens you get back problems and they're all links and uh, so michael carrick's got to be really careful he's got to get this one better otherwise not only will it reoccur but he'll be having some back trouble later in the season and michael carrick's out till christmas however i love christmas to quote mufc facebook I mean, it's a difficult one, isn't it? And and lots of the questions that we've had from listeners this week relate to the midfield partnership moving forward at Alexander Gallo, saying with Carrick now out, what's your preferred central midfield partnership? He, he said he would opt for Cleverly and Jones. And it's interesting, isn't it, that I don't know how many people would have Fellaini in their midfield partnership, given that he is the midfielder we signed to bolster that area of the squad. Well, quite, yeah. No, I, I think Cleverly and Jones might be a little lightweight. So, you know, one guy keeping the ball but doing nothing with it and the other guy giving it away all the time. So it doesn't quite sound like the right balance to me. I wouldn't have Jones in there. I mean, I think Jones is a legitimate competition in the back four right now. And, you know, he could well command a place there. I'd probably have Cleverly there because he does retain possession really well. He does move the ball quickly. And if you're not going to play your £27.5 million midfielder right now when you desperately need him, when are you going to play? He's got to play Fellaini and uh, I think he will as well and this is Fellaini's big opportunity he's disappointed so far significantly disappointed I think given the price you know which isn't his fault of course but uh, given the quality of player that Moyes believes he's got so now it's his opportunity to prove that he can be a real leader he's got to do it and you know it's funny because we talked a lot about like what is Fellaini for on the podcast in the last couple of weeks and sadly playing second striker getting the ball hoofed to him was what he was all about in his little cameo against Arsenal hoof yeah I mean it really was wasn't it you know punting the upfield it was a pretty agricultural stuff for the last 15 minutes or so I mean not that United had the ball very much for that that 15 minutes uh, statistics and, uh, and all of that can uh, tell many a story but uh, the fact that Arsenal had uh, three times as many passes in those last 15 minutes tell you the domination they had they kept the ball and tried to do something with it and United banged it long to Fellaini and hey fair enough Fellaini is a world-class talent at holding it on his chest and bringing other players into play he's just not a world-class talent in central midfield where United paid 27 and a half million pounds for some world-class talent yeah, absolutely. So we're going to really be short in that area. And actually, you know, in the second half, once Jones was dropped into defence, we really looked short in central midfield. Carrick not having a good game, cleverly coming on and not having a particularly great game. Not as bad as Carrick, but the whole thing was just not working at all in the second half. I kind of want to talk about Rooney's performance. We've had two questions about Rooney's performance. At Nightwink99 says, will there be some praise for Rooney on the podcast this week? Already has been. Yeah, at J double underscore Forrest says, was Rooney's performance really that good versus Arsenal? I think it was his best performance of the season. I thought he combined the running around with some real output and creativity and 
he definitely deserves praise for that performance because it was good. But it's sort of a bit sad to me that that is now perceived as the best of Wayne Rooney because, you know, the one assist, not never really looking like he was going to score, never really taking players on or looking exciting, right? Just very, very functional and sort of effective. Well, yes, but that is what we get from Rooney now. You know, it's, uh, you know, if you'd said 10 years ago, is this what Rooney would have become? You know, some of the talent has gone, but he'll work hard. You'd be disappointed, wouldn't you? Because 10 years ago, you thought he was a potential world star who would be right up there with the very elite of the game. And that's just not true anymore. And, And he can't possibly be classed as being up with the very elite of world players on that kind of performance. It was a good performance for United. It was a very good performance from United this is praise and I don't particularly like the guy but this is praise and it's not through gritted teeth because I want him to do well but some of the talent has gone Uh, he doesn't do the things he used to do he's not as creative uh, as he once was and I don't just mean in terms of the numbers because he actually puts up brilliant numbers Uh, in the calendar year uh, I believe I'm right in saying he has more assists than any other Premier League player you know he puts up the numbers and he scores goals and he's scoring at a half decent rate this season but I, I, I think uh, the range of passing is not what he wants. Was he never beats a man anymore? Almost never. Uh, and you know, a lot of the work rate, rate is you know running around, uh, not always in headless chicken fashion, but a lot of the time it is. You know, and I wonder whether later in his career he'll pay for that. So, have we seen the best of Wayne Rooney for United? Yeah, definitely, we've seen the best of Wayne Rooney for United. But is he useful to United? Yes, absolutely. So David Moyes describing him as uh, Robin Van Persie's sidekick after the match and a little word about Rob playing with a smile on his face and then a massive triumphant warrior's roar upon his face as he respectfully celebrated the heck out of that goal. Loved it, didn't he? Loved every minute of it. And and why not? You know, I think it's nonsense, this debate afterwards about whether he should celebrate. It's insufferably pious, this habit of not celebrating a goal. You know, fans want you to feel part of it as a player. Fans want that. It's like making love to a beautiful woman and and her just lying there and doing nothing. It might be good, but it's not as good uh, if they're not enjoying it as well. And uh, that's what you want from a player. And I I thought it was great uh, that he celebrated with passion. Uh, You know, United fans love him all the more for that if it irks some Arsenal fans as well. Too bad. Too bad. I mean, I think last season, I thought it was fairly appropriate because I think there's a difference between Robbie Keane not celebrating against, you know, Liverpool or whatever, players that have a kind of very fractional relationship with the club. But when you do have a club that has nurtured you through seasons and seasons and stuck with you through injury and all this kind of stuff and has been a huge part in making you the player you are, it's like if David Beckham had scored for Milan when he came back to United and gone absolutely ballistic, there would have been something a bit irksome about that. Yeah, but it's not black and white, is it? So there's nothing wrong with enjoying a goal. No, I basically feel like he got the balance right last season. He he gave him a lot of respect. They gave him absolutely none back and just relentless, relentless abuse. And so this season he was like, all right, then, Sodja, I'm going to go nuts. Wenger saying he's still an Arsenal man. I think uh, misjudging the old mind games there. Yes, well, he's misjudging Robin Van Persie's personality, I think, who's a very focused and determined individual, which is, you know, a little odd from Wenger. I'm not quite sure what he thought would happen trying to wind up uh, Van Persie. But uh, there you go. You know, it was inevitable, wasn't it, from the moment that Wenger started talking about Van Persie, uh, that he would score the winning goal. And score the winning goal he did, sort of in off the shoulder and the side of the face. 
But then he went over and ran over and celebrated with Wayne and there was lots of hugging and smiling and knee slides and everybody grinning and looking pretty happy. And, and it does feel like the mood around the club has lifted slightly. Lots of wins. Not yet the performances. And, you know, I... It's funny because there was a lot of a heck of a lot of Moyes out when he wasn't doing too well and a heck of a lot of Moyes in going on at the moment. And I feel like both positions are equally unfounded. You know, it's it's like we don't know anything. You can just ignore the Twitter crowd. You know, they're all nut jobs. Yeah, especially this lot that listen to this podcast. Nutters, a lot of them. So uh, I don't think there's a lot of Moyes out amongst the uh, the regulars at Old Trafford. I, I don't think there's, uh, you know, a lot of over the top Moyes in if that makes any sense either you know most fans are waiting and seeing and if he delivers then you know fantastic he'll be hero worshipped and if he doesn't people will give him time and uh, talking of uh, Moyes in and Moyes out, this is a subject that I covered briefly in the discussion that we're about to play for you that I had earlier today with Dan Harris. Before we get to that, we talk a lot about the 99 season and his excellent book, The Promised Land, Manchester United's Historic Treble, available now from all good bookshops. Well, we're extremely delighted to be joined by Daniel Harris on the pod this week. We've been trailing this for weeks and weeks, Daniel, uh, as we've tried to make it happen. Listen, let's cut straight to the the meat of this. You've got a book out and it's excellent. Can you tell us a bit about the gestation of the book? Um, pretty much. It was just something that was surprising that no one had written the book about the treble season yet, apart from the usual kind of quickly rushed out stuff that you get after an achievement of any sort, really. There hadn't been anything done about this. It was particularly interesting for me, I suppose, because it came at a good period of my life. It was my first year at university, which I suppose also was the first year that I was in charge of my own football going. And then you have just the things that happened that made it, for my money, the most absurd, exciting, interesting and ultimately best season that any football team has ever had. It's kind of interesting that the books come out now, just as Fergie's going, it's the kind of very obvious high point of his career. But was the timing partly deliberate or were you going to do it this summer, whatever happened? No, no, it was a a complete coincidence. Book was pitched before we knew he was retiring. I mean, it was there was always a suspicion that this was it. Like certainly in the early part of the season when things were going badly, it looked like it was going to be it. But the book was first pitched quite a long time before that. But it was written very much in that period when he quit. I ended up having, I think, two months to do it, pretty much. And it was precisely in that period when Fergie was in the process of quitting. Reading the book, the the thing that I think surprised me was just how much detail there is. I'm assuming that that is not all recalled from watching these football matches. 14 years ago. That's kind of frightening to say out loud how long ago that was, isn't it? Yeah, we old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what was the process? Did you go back and watch every game of that season again? Where did you find them? All that sort of thing. I watched pretty much, I watched everything, in fact, everything I could get my hands on. So I watched, I watched Lodge at home again, which isn't something I ever thought I was going to do. And there's basically some sites on the internet where people will provide you with footage of old games so I watched everything I could possibly get my hands on because the detail I think is quite important first of all there's that element of anorak in lots of us as football fans where you only you're only going to know things if you if you watch them so for example something I didn't know at the time was that in Everton away um, David Beckham gets the ball and um, he pushes it one side of David Unsworth, runs around the other side, and Unsworth is busy doing splits on the floor and as he's there doing the splits Beckham turns around and laughs at him 
that's not a crucial detail, but it's something that I watched it and I thought that's excellent. And that says so much about Beckham. And you're not going to know that if you if you haven't watched it. But then also, I think through that the detail and through that kind of detail gives you the ability to kind of take a, a wider view and present a more overarching picture of the things that you're trying to say and how the treble was achieved and that kind of thing. And it's interesting because early on in the book, things are tough. You know, it didn't start brilliantly that season by any means, did it? Um, no, I think that was partly the, the, the arguing over money for, uh, for Dwight York. So that United needed a striker, obviously needed a striker, actually tried to sign two because they were after Cliver as well. And it wasn't really until York turned up that they started playing football, really good football. Even after that, Fergie was kind of playing with the team, trying to work out who the best partner was. And then it was only really once Andy Cole came in. Like he, he came on as a sub against Liverpool when United were one up, but he was absolutely brilliant in the 20 minutes that he got, having not played at all against Arsenal. And you know, um, United suddenly got very much better, but it was like lots of those things that happen in football where you put things together or in any sport and suddenly there's something there and it happens. It was that moment when, um, when Cole came in but even then, it took Stan a while to find his best form. And it was only after that Middlesbrough game when um, they conceded three goals quite quickly and got told when Fergie came back from um, came back from South Africa, I think it was, that things really started to change. I remember that season as just being like a kind of strange raw adrenaline all, all the way through the season. There were, there were moments of, you know, brilliant performance where we kind of swept teams aside. Um, but there was just... This, you know, when when Tilsley says can United score, they always score. It now it just sort of feels like this massive cliche. But that season, it really felt that way, didn't it? Felt that way until just around then, where every time United went behind, and it was a, an absurd number of games that were rescued from a deficit, you felt like they were going to do something about it. But I think like York misses a really good chance um, at the end of the final. And for me, that was definitely, I thought, well, this is it. That feeling that they would score, as you say, meant that I hadn't written partly the fact, I suppose, that I was young. I hadn't really contemplated the fact that United were going to not win that game. But I thought it was quite telling that every big miss of York's during the season. So when he misses the penalty at Arsenal, he misses, he slams one over the bar in the last minute at Leeds that would have gone a really long way to securing the title. And he does lots of grinning that... Uh, was hard not to find quite annoying, but there is an absence of grinning when he misses what's really a tap in at, at the end of that final. And I definitely didn't think that they were going to score then, but um, I could see how you might have done because they did score in every other occasion. The things that stand out without even thinking about that season, Solskjaer's goal at Liverpool in the cup. I mean, <laughs> Roy Keane, I, I just I don't even know how to begin to address the, the subject of Roy Keane's performance in Turin and then the end of that final. These really obvious, iconic moments that we all know. Uh, what were what were some of the games that stood out to you that maybe you didn't remember so well that really had an impact on you when you were preparing to write the book? Well, I think like one of the things that I hadn't quite deduced, even though it was something that I felt sure I knew, was how good Andy Cole was. In that Dwight York got most of the credit, I think, for that partnership because he turned up and made things very different, but the variety of goals that Cole was scoring, but also the, the electrifying out of nothing goals that only he could score with things was something that perhaps over the passage of time I'd forgotten. Like for example, the goal that he scored to clinch the league at Spurs, at home, at home to Spurs. It's not the best goal you've ever seen, but it is a really good goal 
But more interestingly, I think it's a goal that out of the players in that squad, only Andy Cole could score because he had that combination of de- awkward dexterity that meant he could do things very, very quickly that didn't flow because there wasn't the space or the time to do them in a flowing manner. And that's why Andy, only Andy Cole could do them, whereas someone like York was much more loose and m- much more rounded edges. And so the things that he did looked much easier, whereas Cole did things that were difficult, but he made them look difficult as well. That goal is, is sort of embedded in my unconscious. Like I can see all the shapes involved in that goal. There's just something about the the Andy Cole's body shape, the arc of the ball. It's it's it was an everything that it meant. It was a really kind of perfect moment. We were all inclined to look back on that season as a, a really golden period for United because obviously it was the most remarkable achievement and. I think what maybe some fans that have come to United since that happened don't realise is even though we had won a lot in the previous sort of seven years, winning was still still felt quite new, right? We hadn't got jaded on winning the league. That was far from a formality. And in 98, Arsenal looked unstoppable, right? Well, that's kind of the thing in the league, certainly, was that Arsenal team is the best team that, in my opinion, that United have competed against. And so... Because of the way they'd won the league the previous season, no one expected them to, but they were so brilliant in the second half of the season. And then in the first half of 98-99, they absolutely walloped United twice. So most people thought that Arsenal were going to win the league. And in Europe, United's opposition again was such that it was it was so good. And the run to the final was just much harder than any subsequent run. And to an extent, for a team to be great, you're relying on having really great opponents. And United had an incredibly difficult run in the FA Cup. They had an incredibly difficult run in Europe. And they also beat, as I say, for my money, their best opponent of the Fergie era. And not only did they do that, but they did it in thrilling style with some incredible eviscerations and comebacks. Or put another way, anything that you might wish for in a football season is there in abundance. And it's that as much as the success. And of course, like the, the success is unprecedented. But more importantly, the glory is unprecedented. And when you meld the two together, you have something that will never happen again. And in a way, I, and this is quite hard for, pe- for me anyway, that every now and again, a United team will get in with a chance of winning the treble. And I think, well, obviously, I'm desperate for them to win the treble. But on the other hand, I like the fact that no other team but this one has done the treble, partly because they were special to me, but partly because it's a special team and a special achievement. And I quite like the fact that it's going to remain that way, not just for all the other teams that exist, but also to United, though I'd enjoy it again if it happened. Yeah, absolutely. But you kind of get the feeling that if it does ever happen again, it could never happen again like that. Well, I think that's the uh, that's in the back of your mind as something that you'll have forever, that no one will no one will ever win a football match so dramatically. And if you look at the things that have happened in recent years to compare, the unfortunate one obviously is Liverpool in two thousand and five, but you can always console yourself and it's not very much consolation, but it is some, that they still require penalties and the 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 thrill of a comeback from three nil down to three all is is quite lengthy ultimately. You've got the 45 minutes of the second half, then you've got the half an hour of extra time, then you've got the penalties. You don't have two goals in the last minute to change a game that you thought you were losing. And it's it's that kind of feeling to not only to clinch the Champions League, but to clinch um to clinch a treble that is something that it seems unlikely will be repeated. Uh, so you were there that night in Barcelona? I was, and it cost 
£12, I think, my ticket costs. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's not bad. Um, it's up there with, with the best value for money expenditures, for sure. Um, yeah, that's better than value for money than Cristiano Ronaldo and Eric Cantona put together, really, isn't it? So what was it like in that five-minute period or three-minute period where the whole world changed and spun on its axis really dramatically to be, you know, a couple of hundred yards away from the action? I remember not, not re- I had no idea who'd scored either goal, just lost in the, the bodies that you're, that you're underneath. I mean, you're kind of still recovering from the first goon, still involved in the first goon when the second one came. And it was so genuinely shocking that made it, I suppose, quite interesting. And in your mind, there's, like, I remember thinking like, very clearly like, as they were kind of scoring the goal and celebrating the second goal that roughly this is it. For people who weren't there in a way, and this sounds like an appalling thing to say, and I don't mean it like that, it's like the first E that they never had, that everything after that is aimed at chasing how good that first one was. You're, I remember thinking on the bus on the, way, on, the way, on the way out the ground that what would it take for something to be as good as that? And you're thinking perhaps a win over Liverpool, like Liverpool City in the European Cup final wasn't even something you thought about then, uh, which was a, a much happier, simpler world. But it's hard. it was hard to think of a way of something that could beat that, which on the one hand was slightly, slightly worrying, but on the other hand sort of has you convincing yourself and reminding yourself to enjoy this moment to the very maximum because this is it. And it, it really was, right? I mean, there's been fantastic stuff happened since then, but for those of us of a, of the, a certain age, that was just the pinnacle of football. And uh, as you say... You kind of it's redundant, much like that uh, first E. It's redundant to chase it because you'll never have it again, and just cherish the fact that it it happened. And it's it's been really interesting in the last sort of you know five years or so that you know that you can just click a button anytime you want and watch it again and feel some sort of semblance of that emotion again. There's an amazing like Fergie's got this beautiful line that's that I nicked for the front of the book where. And I mean, Fergie has many beautiful lines, uh, which is something I think he wasn't almost given enough credit for was the way that he delivered these telling, compelling, eviscerating one-liners. But he said something like, the celebration start by that, started by that goal, and he's talking about the winning goal, will never stop. Just thinking about it can put me in party mood. And that's, that's exactly it. Um, there's a part of us that will always be there, and it's there, there that will always be part of us and it's true it's true and I mean I suppose the thing that you look at most most frequently is that that UEFA footage from 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 pitch level that um that you, where you just can see um Pierre Luigi Colina going around picking up the Munich players and they they can't be roused and all around them there are United players going absolutely mental and that kind of feeling I mean I suppose it's one of the things that makes us love, I mean, in the wider sense, football and sport, but really it's United, isn't it? I mean, those are Manchester United moments that only Manchester United have and why we're lucky enough to have Manchester United bestowed upon us, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it is interesting because, it, I mean, that was kind of the, the height of anyone but United, right, at that, that period in a lot of ways. But there were also a lot of people that were very sympathetic to United at that moment. And it did feel really magic and special to be a sort of weirdly detached part of that. I mean, for you, right in amongst it, but even watching it on TV, it's funny you said you didn't know who'd scored because you were under a mass of bodies. But I don't think many of us watching on TV knew who'd scored either. (laughs) 
No, no. I mean, I think one of the things that was special about this team, one of the things that made me want to do the book was the characters that there were as well, because they were just, you felt, I suppose, more ownership over that team because you've got the youth team players who uh, grew up together and just like, there's something moving about, and you'll see this in the Class of 92 film, there's something moving about watching people achieve something that doesn't ordinarily get achieved, but doing so with their mates. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got proper, you've got iconic characters. I mean, David Beckham, Ryan Giggs are iconic men. Roy Keane, there's no one like Roy Keane. And then you've got interesting characters like Andy Cole and, and Dwight York and hard men like, like Yap Stam. And they were, I think, probably the last team with whom it was easy to feel that kind of people you identified with. And it might be, it might be pretend. I mean, I identify with David Beckham. I mean, what a load of bollocks. But, <laughs> but I can pretend, it's, I can think in my mind that I do. And one thing's yeah. for sure was that David Beckham understood what Manchester United were. And that, and like Lewis Almeida, the complete Cunha nanny, does not. No. And I mean, Gary Neville says when he first met David Beckham, that meeting David Beckham was the first time he realised that someone not from Manchester could love United as much as he did. Right. And, but there's that level of empathy with the players where those the players that grew up at United loved United. And the ones that came in bought into, bought into that and they came and they stayed as long as they could, pretty much. I can't think of any of them that left of their own free will. And, um, and they had something that, I mean, you could watch them play and you could feel the spirit that they had. And that's something that conveyed to people watching. And that's why one of the reasons they were such a special team who got the results that they got. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so sadly, uh, we've got to drag this into uh, the, the contemporary period because um, I had a couple of questions that Ed sent me through to ask you. Uh, first of all, a question from our producer, Tom, which I think is really uh, an interesting one. Um, you wrote an excellent article just before David Moyes started winning, so maybe we put it down to you, about the level to which his poor start was actually worthy of analysis and that writing it off as, well, it's teething problems and all that is kind of doing an injustice to the role in some ways. Um, and so you're pretty scathing about that. Has your, has your opinion, uh, before I get to Tom's question, has your opinion of that shifted at all now he started winning some games? Not really. In the in the same way I kind of said at the beginning of the piece that if David Moyes quit today or was sacked today, no one would have the remotest idea of whether he was fit to manage manage United because he's only had a few games. Similarly, what's happened since has been so few games that you can't really take a long view and say, well, he's definitely he's definitely brilliant now. Um, I think that he's he's got better, and one of the things I kind of found myself saying on. Twitter when you're discussing it with people was that it will definitely get better because he's he's going to get better at the job and he's going to have he's going to work out the things about the players that we thought we knew and I suppose the difference is that Fergie could pick the players that we thought were less good and get something out of them because that's his genius whereas I think Moyes is more reliant on picking the right players at the right time and he'll get better at that because because why wouldn't you and I think we're seeing we're seeing better results because he's picking probably the right players at the right time. And whether, whether it will get better by enough like, is, is, hard, is hard to know because 
we've not seen we've not seen enough of him. He hasn't proved at Everton that he is a hundred percent the man for the job, but he hasn't proved that he isn't either. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Tom asks whether you have any knowledge um, or, or insight into this um, apparent expertise he has with scouting and this kind of very thorough scouting practice. I mean, we've we've heard talk of it, but what's your take on that subject? It's not so. I, I don't have any inside information, but it's something that you kind of chuckle about every now and again when you see him say when he said before the Liverpool game he said um, they tell me how good Shinji Kagawa is as in like basically blaming it on other people saying he's good I don't think he's good was how it seemed at the time and you're kind of thinking well if we're told you watch so many games why don't you know this why don't and the kind of some of the decisions that he's made like he kept playing Ashley Young at the beginning who is not without value even if he's not with it's hard to feel affection for him but the picking, like picking him ahead of Nanny, say, and those things you're thinking, hang on, if you watch so many games, why haven't you noticed this yet? And then you read, and this might not be true, so I feel bad judging him on this, but if, you, if indeed you wouldn't mind getting rid of Raphael, well then how many times can you possibly have watched United to think that that would be wise? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think it's really interesting because we... The, the thing that kind of skipped out of my brain watching the first bit of David Moyes is time in charge was wait a minute he just has watched a lot less United than I have and you can't say that about a United manager for a long time you know so actually his lack of familiarity with the place is pretty understandable but it's as you say it's kind of interesting to compare that to this uh, sense that he's the master scout who does nothing but watch football yeah and that's not always the best way of going about building a winning football team so Fergie for example was not sitting there watching Spartak Moscow thinking hmm that lad Vidic can play or Shivas Guadalajara saying, bloody hell, like that Hernandez is dynamite in the box. One, and that's an interesting distinction between Fergie and Wenger, where Wenger is a complete control freak who does everything himself, whereas Fergie is boozing or watching the horses or reading about Abraham Lincoln or whatever he's doing. And he hired people that he trusted. Um, and he was actually, it's odd, oddly something he was encouraged to do by Martin Edwards was to delegate effectively. And so Fergie wasn't involved in all that nonsense of player watching over and over again until the very end when he'd get a list from the scouts and look at them and decide who United were and weren't going to sign. Whereas Moyes, I think, is much more that Wenger kind of style of wants to do everything himself, which is like, for example, he also does the coaching, which Fergie hardly ever did, although he actually did quite a lot in 98, 99 after Brian Kidd left. Because again, like Moyes, one of the reasons Moyes let Merlinstein go was because he does a lot of the coaching himself, I think. Whereas the Fergie approach was to get, get in people you trusted, to back your judgment when it came to recruitment, to then back their judgment until the point when it got to, have the, when it got to having the final say. I mean, we discussed your article um, and some of the, the nuances of it at some length on the pod, so I won't go uh, back over that, but I thought it was you, the stuff about the staff was really fascinating. And, and I think that, like just like we can't judge whether David Moyes is the right man for the job, we also can't judge whether he's put that right team together. No, I mean, I think as... It's about. It's not particularly about like the techniques or any of that really. When it comes down to it, it's about getting the best out of people. And when he came in, there was an environment that was conducive to getting the best out of those players. They were all happy. And he decided, and this might prove to be the right decision, that getting in his own people in the long term was more conducive to United succeeding than it was keeping people that he didn't want to be there who would, in the first instance, 
it might have made it better. So if he'd have made fewer changes to begin with, you might, United might have got a few more points from the first games. But overall, that wasn't what he wanted. So he decided that that was what was going to happen. And it upset the equilibrium of a previously happy squad, I think. Um, and whether or not that's wrong in the long term is going to depend on whether his men are good, but also on whether they can make a happy atmosphere for the players and where, where, whether there's the kind of working relationship that he needs to, to coach effectively and to get the most from the players as men before you've even really started talking about who's messing around with the tactics because tactics ultimately, they're only going to be a detail. It's are the players happy and fit so they're going to produce their best on the pitch? And if they are, then the other stuff is is detail I think so one last question from us uh, and this is a question from Ed um, <laughs> you could tell it's a question from Ed because of the wording he says what did Dan think of Fergie's book dot 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 and the glaring omissions ah, um, I I haven't read Fergie's book because part mainly actually because I sort of wanted to wait until the kind of news lines had died down because I, I was kind of the stuff that you kind of can't avoid in the papers, like Wayne Rooney wants to play up front and Roy Keane's got a bad temper, are all a bit, I'm not, they're not that interesting. And it's just, so I thought I'd wait until I'd sort of forgotten all of those things and then immerse myself in the joy of hearing what Fergie has to say about stuff. Because, I mean, his his compelling man and uh that wasn't a deliberate piece that was as i say that was a deliberate piece of swearing i, I don't think it does enough to call fergie compelling he's f- compelling and that's the stuff that i hope has come through as far as the emissions go this is i think an interesting distinction between fergie and Keane. whereas in Keane's book he speaks pretty harshly about people as you'd expect but he doesn't speak anywhere near as harshly about anyone as he does himself whereas ferg is not into self-analysis and self-criticism, or if he is, he doesn't talk about it. And I think that is a massive shame, and not just about the Rock of Gibraltar stuff. I mean, I don't really need Fergie to say, I really screwed that up. I was a total (laughs) over that. Whether he thinks it or not is irrelevant. I mean, really, I think, I mean, I'd like him to acknowledge how, as a consequence, he imperiled the future of United, how there are so many people that now can't afford to go who were able to afford to go, or who'd been going for generations of their family who stopped going as a consequence of that because i do think that that's something he should think about and is answerable to is answerable for even but what i'd be interested in is as much as the mistakes that he made like the footballing mistakes he made because ultimately i want to read about fergie the football man not about fergie the businessman because he's i'm not interested in him as a businessman i'm interested in him as a man and the manifestation of him in as it relates to football and I think, from what I, un- what I understand, that's something that is missing from the book, and I think that's a shame. Well, thank you very much for your time, and it thinks sort of feels kind of appropriate that you've written a book about the absolute pinnacle of his experience as a football man. Um, and I just highly recommend it to everyone. Uh, everyone that will talk to me about Man United, I've recommended this book to because I think it's a fantastic read. And it, it's been, it's, I haven't finished your book, funnily enough, because of uh, Fergie's book. But every time I dip into it and it's just been taken back to a time and place where everything uh, everything just felt that little bit sweeter. So it's, it's much appreciated. It was a happy place. Yeah, it was. Thanks very much indeed for your time. Thanks for having me. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. 
Okay, excellent stuff, uh, Daniel Harris there. And uh, I think Paul said uh, his book out now, The Promised Land, and it's all about the 99 season. Uh, I remember that season very, very well, uh, you know, with a big smile on my face uh, and more than a tear down the cheek that season as well. It was uh, incredible stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess it's time to do a bit of news, right? Michael Carrick is out till Christmas, as we discussed earlier, but he has also signed a two-year extension to his contract, which is good news uh, for most United fans, I would say. Very good news, yeah. Important that he stays on at United, I think. You know, he can't have the midfield resources depleted anymore. He's not a man who relies on pace. I think he'll go well into his late 30s as a top-level player. Very good that he's staying on at United for another couple of seasons. They don't always do that for players into their 30s, do they? The club had traditionally a one-year deal, although I remember Ryan Giggs getting a two-year deal in the past. I wonder whether Carrick's taken a cut in wages as a result to take that extra deal. But as you say, we're not going to be seeing him for a while, and this does definitely cause United the problem. It's the kind of injury you do get as you get older, and it takes longer to heal and recover from as well. So when they say six weeks, I'm quite sure it's going to be the full six weeks. Um, he tweeted earlier that he's not really used to dealing with injuries and it, it's true isn't it he's not really missed much of his career through injuries he's obviously looked after himself very well and also been pretty fortunate with the impact injuries and things like that yeah very fortunate yeah no serious you know broken legs and strained ligaments and that kind of thing but I think we've said repeatedly over the last three years what a crisis there'd be if Carrick was injured well we're going to find out aren't we and, and, you know, so we've got uh, plenty of numbers in terms of resources that can play in central midfield. Uh, Fellaini, uh, we've mentioned and cleverly we talked about, and, and Jones obviously had the good game against Arsenal, and, and Ryan Giggs, I suspect, will be in there, especially in the European games. And the, the love that dare not speak its name, Anderson, is available. Anderson, son, son, he's our fifth choice midfield man. Uh, Anderson, son, yeah, son. Maybe more than that. Yeah. He, he didn't even get it on the bench against Arsenal. Yanazai was on the bench and maybe they, uh, he chose between the two of them. Of course, Yanazai could easily play in central midfield. He's perfectly good enough, although you would worry just for looking at him about the physical state of things. But he, he doesn't seem to have been bothered by that so far. It's a bit different though, isn't it, when your job is to run at players with the ball rather than do the kind of defensive work required of a midfield position. It feels like that would be a bridge too far for the young man at this point, no? The balance is going to be key here because I don't think Cleverly can play as, as the more defensive-minded. Uh, he has to play with another defensive player, Cleverly, in there. I mean, ideally, he'd play with three because I just think he's that kind of player. He likes to rotate the ball. He's not creative enough. He's not defensive enough. That makes it sound like a lot of criticism. He's got many qualities, Cleverly, but I don't think he could play with an attacking player in there. It would be too much weight of responsibility. But if Cleverly's going to play, I think he needs to play with a player who's going to give uh, the midfield a bit of muscle, which Fellaini hasn't done at all so far but you know, as I said earlier here's his chance Carrick's out for at least six weeks could be more uh, and you know what it's not a bad fixture list up to the new year not a bad fixture list at all you know, I play Tottenham uh, on the 1st of December aside from that there's not a lot to be fearful of I think before the new year January could be interesting quite a tough run then and then uh, obviously Chelsea and City to come during the spring but you know December not too bad at all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to predict at this point that at White Pele 10, who often tweets her thoughts during the course of listening to the Rankcast, will have tweeted at me at this point when I said Michael Carrick hasn't had a lot of impact injuries, something derogatory about him shirking challenges, and that's why he's stayed injury-free. That's my prediction at this point. Um, talking of players who maybe are not 
so up for the physical side of the game. Our former Dutch wonder coach has joined up with fellow Dutch genial manager to look after the technical well-being of one Dimitar Berbatov and his other colleagues at Fulham. Rene's back in a job in England. Uh, I thought he'd gone to be the technical director of football in Qatar. That seems to have lasted even less long than his Angie Machkala stint. Yeah, uh, Angie McManaman, Manamanamanamanaman. Uh, 16 days he lasted as manager there before getting the chopper down to finances rather than the quality of his coaching, I should say. Yeah, it looked like he was nailed on for that job in Qatar, uh, nailed on with a bag full of petrochemical cash. Doesn't look like it's uh, worked out for him, so he's back in the Premier League at Fulham. In a way, I'm surprised, of course, because he, he had already turned down that approach once from Fulham when it looked like he was negotiating with the Qatari FA. Now, I'm also surprised because he could have joined a much bigger club. With all respect to Fulham, of course, you know, they're, they're not a club that's going to be challenging for honours anytime soon. But maybe he'll help them out. You know, they've got plenty of talented players there and they're not performing for Yol, which is a worry, I think, for Millenstein as well, because if Yol goes, a new man will presumably bring his own staff in unless Mullenstein is being a bit Machiavellian here and thinking that Yoli's going to get the chop and he's had some kind of promise that he's next in line for the job it does have a bit of that sort of feel to it doesn't it I mean I, I guess you know they're maybe they're big Dutch mates you know hey they're big Dutch mates <laughs> um but maybe not maybe this is a bit more like a, a Gerard Houllier and Roy Evans situation he's my coach and also my lover <laughs> um, there's a mental image for you it's uh it's exciting though isn't it there's there's, there's going to be some technical business going on there isn't there well they'll be doing keepy uppies all over the pitch might not be scoring any goals but hey it's going to be fun to watch i hope it works out for him and uh, i hope it works out better than our dodgy ducks accents yeah, they're dodgy, yes. So, talking of uh, the world of international accents, it's an uh, international break. So, before we do a load of your Twitter questions, is there any big significant news? Van Persie, Welbeck and Carrick all out of international action. I don't know, I'm quite glad Robin's not gone off with Holland to score goals and maybe hurt his little toesies. We wouldn't like that to happen, would we? We certainly wouldn't. I think it was a convenient injury that he's picked up this week. No, the, look, the real interest is uh, away from Europe, really. I mean, the, the playoffs are, are there and, of course, the world may end. Dark matter may be released. Ibrahimovic versus Ronaldo uh, is the big one. That's going to be explosive, isn't it? It's a shame that both of them won't make the World Cup. Team Ibra. <laughs> You're on Team Ibra, are you? Uh, yeah, I mean, he's been absolutely fantastic this season for PSG, you know, even if they are uh, financially doping all the way to the French title. As well, uh, there's playoffs uh, in uh, South America. Mexico are in a playoff uh, against New Zealand. I think they're playing on Wednesday night. So by the time you get this, Mexico will have soundly beaten New Zealand, you'd expect. And earlier today, Uruguay thrashed Jordan in the South American Asian playoff. 5-0 winners there, so they're definitely on the plane to Brazil. Uh, unless the most remarkable result in football ever happens and Jordan wins 6-0 in, in Uruguay next week. Yeah, it seems a tad unlikely. Talking of Mexico, I don't think we covered our little Mexican peas, mild, passive-aggressive situations on Twitter last week, did we, on the show? Did we not talk about that? Oh, this is brilliant. Uh, retweeting the story from Sky Sports saying that uh, his international teammate had uh, mentioned that he might need to leave Manchester United in order to get more games. 
about, I don't know, three months ago, he tweeted something like some Uber quote nonsense saying, you know, uh, if you're too nice, people will take advantage of you. His passive aggressiveness on Twitter is rubbish. It's, it's just like really mm. bad at it. Uh, the other thing is you wonder if he's using Wayne Rooney as a kind of role model and he thinks that he's going to get made captain now if he does stuff like this. Oh, he needs to put in a transfer request and try and force through a transfer to Liverpool or something, doesn't he? You know, he nailed on for the captaincy then in uh, in Moise's world. Uh, lots of talk that Hernandez may leave in January. Arsenal uh, supposed bidders, they certainly need another striker. He'd probably do very well there. Absolutely no chance that Moyes will let him go in January. Maybe the summer, though. It, it might be hard to keep hold of him. Of course, you know, uh, Hernandez may be of the mind that he needs to go. I, I'd be surprised he doesn't seem that kind of personality. But right now, he's not... Not going to be starting in the World Cup for Mexico. Why would he? He barely starts for United. I mean, it's funny because you say he's not that kind of personality, but I actually do think genuinely that he is being worn down by the situation. So I think he put up with it for a long time. He always played with a smile on his face. But, you know, since last season, he's celebrated his goals with a kind of slightly more aggressive, you know, kind of rah, instead of the kind of happy grin that there was before that. That tweet, it, 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 it's kind of silly and, and fun to talk about a tweet like that, but it's incredibly revealing of a, of a kind of a, a personal discomfort, isn't it, if you're going to do that? Because you must, you must have some sense that it's going to be taken as what it was taken as. Uh, yeah. I'm quite sure, yeah. There's a message being said there. I'm I'm quite sure he knew that it would generate the coverage that it did. Uh, Talking of people trying to get new jobs, uh, as a desperate segue there, Mike Phelan this week came out and said that, uh, yes, he'd like a new job. He'd like to be a manager in the Premier League. So would I, Mike. Yeah, so so would the nodding dog off the Churchill Insurance adverts, who we know that Mike Phelan bases his whole personality on. Apparently Mike Phelan, an excellent coach. Um, Everyone in the know seems to say that. So uh, easy, an easy figure of fun, but apparently genuinely very knowledgeable football man. Uh, So there we go. But he's a bit, he's he's been chipping off as well. They all have, haven't they? They were all a bit grumpy, I think, about the way it ended at United. Essentially saying we would have signed Cristiano Ronaldo had Fergie stayed. Yes, well, uh, plenty of good rumours in uh, this month's Red Issue about that one, about how uh, Woodward uh, perhaps didn't approach this in the right way and the deal was potentially on anyway yeah uh, i won't um, reveal all their content you know, go and get a copy but uh, pretty interesting stuff all right so uh, i guess we should come on to some twitter questions we've got a bit of extra time for twitter questions for once this week at farhan underscore ahmed says after fellaini's terrific debut as a bouncer what other jobs could you see some members of our squad doing I think Robin has a sort of slightly diplomat air to him. I could see him travelling around trying to, you know, improve the Netherlands' reputation abroad and doing a fantastic job of it. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure he could do that. Rio Ferdinand could, uh, I don't know, uh, what could he do? Maybe like like design a range of some sort of headwear. I don't know, maybe, maybe use a number of some kind on that headwear and see if you could persuade people to actually buy that product. Oh, no, that'll never work. That'll never work. Fellaini could be a chimney sweep. Nemanja Vidic could be a Serbian soldier and very, very, very nearly was. Uh, yes, that would have been scary enough. Uh, he'd have been blowing up uh, Adnan Yanezai's family, wouldn't he? Maybe we ought not to go there. I think uh, Wayne Rooney would be a you know a good dealer in scrap metal. Adnan Yanazai talking of the lad, uh, a picture of him in a Roma shirt aged about 12, uh, looking like he was just about to go and stop the T-1000 from taking over the world and destroying all the humanity's future hope. So he could perhaps do something along those lines. 
Danny Welbeck could, of course, go and live with his uh, wealthy uncle uh, on the west coast of the United States of America and generally just be some sort of royalty in a region of Los Angeles. Killing aliens. <laughs> yeah, also he could do some killing aliens. Maybe he could play a boxer in a movie. I don't know, something along those lines. Very good. So, <laughs> at Big Shimmery Wall, asked two questions. One of them is like really grown up and serious. He says, now that Rene's gone to Fulham, should they be a club to loan players to come January? I think definitely. I, I think, you know, anytime we can put our young players in Rennie Moulinstein's uh, charge, we're on to a winner. It's proved pretty effective in the past, right? Mm, I, I'm not sure Moyes would think that. He sacked the fella. <laughs> oh, no, he wanted to put him in charge of youth development, right? That's, he just uh, didn't want the pay cut. Dave's other question, though, is if Fred the Red was replaced by a big mascot suit version of a United player, past or present, who would you choose? And I feel like we have to say who would you choose other than Eric. No, it's got to be Eric. <laughs> yeah. be a massive giant head, a, a big pile of garlic around him, and you just keep flying into the, the, the crowd, kicking eight-year-old. <laughs> That would Absolutely be... fantastic. <laughs> when I kind of pointed out to uh, to at Big Shimmering Wall that we were very likely to say Eric, he went on to ask a follow-up question, which was, okay, iconic number seven, Eric, or big massive fisherman beard, Eric. I really like the idea of a mascot version of big massive fisherman beard, Eric. That's good, but I think you should you should smash the two together. Big massive fisherman beard, Eric, fly-kicking eight-year-olds. So basically what you're saying is the fly-kicking eight-year-olds bit is a deal-breaker for you. It's very important, yeah. <laughs> okay. At Just Call Me Godly says, what should United do in January? Listen, much like mince pies, we are not having conversations about the January transfer window until it is December. Have you had a, have you had any mince pies this year yet, Ed? I, I have not. I have not. Although uh, Mrs. Rant um, did eat a mince pie today. I witnessed this. <laughs> yeah, it's just too early to talk about the transfer window and to eat mince pies. Um, at Salil Fatak, a writer for United Rant, asks, do you think that David Moyes considers Kagawa as an actual number 10 in the pecking order for the number 10 position? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a very simple and short answer to that one. No, he, he was saying, do you think he's 10th in line for the number 10 position, essentially, at this point? Ah, oh, well, that might be about right. Yes. No, I mean, he's uh, he, he's duking that uh, substitute number 10 role out with, um, with Adnan and uh, possibly Ryan Giggs as well. Um, at Kill All Dippers, that is not a name I enjoy at all. <laughs> just like, come on, man. Let's just be a bit nicer to each other as human beings. Ask. Is that a suggestion? I really like his question too. He says, if you could create a snapshot of any United moment out of Lego, which one and why? Yours is going to be Eric Fly kicking that guy, isn't it? (laughs) Oh no, or maybe uh, Ollie skidding on his knees towards the corner flag after that winner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is kind of a 99 themed show and it's got to be that or Roy Keane with a Lego captain's goal. That'd be pretty good. Awesome. Who would win a dance-off between Adnan Yanazai and Robin Van Persie? Ooh. Listen, Yanazai has definitely got the moves like Yanazai. He is, but he's a kid. You know, I think Van Persie would be would be a smooth operator. He would just, uh, he, yeah, he'd get the women, wouldn't he? In light of Carrick's injury, asks Don McDowell, do you think Wayne Rooney will enjoy his new midfield role or will he be angry and confused? Good question. Better ask Wayne that one. Yeah, absolutely. At MDD underscore nine says, is it too late to sign Veron back? I'm not sure it's ever too late to sign Veron back. It would be kind of cool for Veron and Shinji to have a mismatched player to the needs of United squad off. Yeah, I mean, uh, Veron's still going, isn't he? He's retired a couple of times, keeps coming back. He's, uh, he's like 38 or 39 or something along those lines. There is a midfielder who is available uh, and, uh, you know, used to wear the number seven. Bex 
could fill in for a few weeks now. I'm, I am kidding, definitely kidding. Although, think of the marketing dollars. That's what exactly. That was at Jim Dawes' exact question. He said, "Think of the Glazer merch." Uh, yeah, I, I think they would like that more than we would. At Abby at AB Five Y says, "Perfect time to recall Paul Pogba from his loan spell at Juventus." If only, yeah, the uh, recollection fee being around 35 to 40 million pounds. What a goalie. Have you seen the goal he scored at the weekend? Oh, absolute beauty. Flicked it up and banged it in. Now, Juventus playing great stuff. You wouldn't want to get them in the uh, in the European football, would you? But, um, in the yeah. European football? <laughs> that's what that's what they're... That's just, they've just that's, merged that's the official name. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, the European football. Um, I don't know why an Eastern European person had to say that, but they did. Uh, yeah, I mean, I watched that game and we, we had a little chat afterwards on Twitter about... Pogba and you were sort of saying that you just don't buy the argument that the combination of the fact that he wasn't performing well enough to be in the first team and uh, his attitude was apparently not great in the reserves that was not enough of a reason for him not to be given the whopping contract he wanted because the class should have told. Well, he didn't get a whopping contract to Juve, so uh, I think this is uh, somewhat uh, nonsensical. I mean, uh, Yanazai is being paid way more than Pogba's deal at uh, Juve. Uh, not not the one he's going to sign, of course, but uh, the one he got. So let's put that one to bed. It's nothing about greed. Uh, you know, the, the deal he took at Juve is uh, significantly less than a million euros a year. Uh, it's not a lot. That wasn't about money, although maybe for United. No, the question was this. You had a player chomping at the bit to play, desperately wanted to play. Probably, as a result of that desperation, didn't do particularly well for the reserves. I don't think you got the kind of level of performance that and a strict meritocracy would have justified a position in the first team. Football doesn't work like that. There's many times that players have not necessarily been doing brilliantly uh, in the reserves and have gone into the first team so you know I, I thought the class was always there I, th- I thought uh, as Anna said there's plenty of times on this show he probably should have been given the opportunity you know and he said it himself the straw that broke the camel's back was uh, Park and Raphael in central midfield it's really hard to argue with that one you know um, you can make the argument about he wasn't doing well enough in some kind of you know meritocracy but when Park and Raphael get picked in central midfield that's not a meritocracy that's nonsense i mean i guess that's fair enough it's funny because you watch him play and he he has a massive arrogance about him when he plays right and it's partly born of quality and you know we've all loved players with a certain arrogance about them but i feel like there was a kind of arrogance that fergie understood and would tolerate and then there's a kind of arrogance that he wouldn't and it feels like Pogba slightly falls into that category. And this is very sort of esoteric. And I, I, I would struggle to be pinned down to any specifics on this argument. It's like a, a sense of the player that somehow he just does not quite feel like a Fergie type. And that doesn't necessarily reflect well on Fergie getting rid of him because actually maybe that's a bit of a flaw in Fergie's gloried history, that there's just a kind of type of player that he wasn't able to get brilliantly on with. Uh, anyway, a very profoundly unscientific analysis there. At King Kyle says, would you swap Kagawa for Royce and Gundogan? Yeah, I would, but Borussia Dortmund definitely wouldn't. Royce is probably as good as Shinji, right? Um, and well, they just paid an absolutely huge amount of money to bring him to the club in the summer. You know, absolutely fantastic player. Again, though, he's a kind of utility forward. Uh, I, you know, I know that um, 
He is very flexible and he has played in central midfield. Doesn't mean that's his best position. He's also played out wide. Again, not his best position. Uh, his best position is in a kind of deep-lying forward, attacking midfield. He gets tons of goals and assists that way. He's a brilliant player. Uh, love him. Would be fantastic at United. Think he'd fit in really well. Not quite sure how Moyes would use him. Gundogan, it's much more obvious, right? Uh, he would fit very neatly into a, a two in central midfield. Uh, he'd do very well. Uh, of course, um, Mullenstein said this week, he is the player United should buy. Uh, United have been watching him. He's going to cost an absolute fortune. So, you know, do we believe the Glazers will get out of the checkbook and spend that big money? I'm not sure they will in January. They might do in the summer when they're convinced that Moyes is still the man for United. I, I don't think United are about to spunker 50 or 60 million pounds in this window. At Unabated Shaggy says, how many bears could Bear Grylls grill if Bear Grylls could grill bears? He probably has. He probably rips their head off with his bare hands. Yeah, I think the essential answer to that is loads. If it was in a like carefully constructed studio environment designed to look like the wilderness. Ooh, ooh, diss, diss, diss on Bear Grylls. Yeah, this is Rankast, not... Uh wilderness rant <laughs> um at paul gunning one says when was brendan rogers body taken over by a clown i think we all know the exact date that that happened it was when the cam it was when the cameras started rolling on being liverpool oh, yes you know we've had our moments of criticism for david moyes but at least we don't have Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, absolutely. Although he's doing a pretty good job with Liverpool. I know he's a complete catastrophe when it comes to kind of his personal style, but he's not doing a bad job at that club. They're definitely better off with him than they were before he took over. I'm sorry, uh, you're breaking up. Uh, didn't hear any of that. Uh, sorry, static on the like crank caller, crank caller. Anyway... On that wonderful note, uh, do we have more questions and more topics to cover in this week's show? I realise this is a long one. Uh, yeah, at Tom Tom Tard says, what did you spend your $50,000 GTA stimulus package on? Oh, wait, I mean, uh, let me think of a question about United. It was a custom entity XF. Uh, then he says, will Yanazai be given slash deserve the number seven shirt next season? Is it too soon? Or will he have 44 snapbacks out next summer? I kind of feel like brand 44 is coming with this lad. I hope not. I, I'd, I'd rather it was a, a cooler brand. Maybe, you know, there is an empty shirt number at the moment. Maybe, just maybe. It's a funny one, isn't it? Because there's this weird thing about that number seven shirt now. It's kind of marketing created to a certain extent because we've had some right right old rubbish players playing that number seven shirt. But the fact that Valencia kind of has now turned his back on it, it's definitely added like to its mystique. Oh, this is so hot. It's too hot for some players, you know. It's the curse of the Bambino. <laughs> just... <laughs> On the number seven shirt. Yeah. Uh, no, I think he's the right man for the job. Give it to him in the summer when he's proved himself uh, this year. All right. So uh, now we come to the big talking point of the rank cast this week. I think this one will run and run and run. If you have any... Uh... How do we convince Mrs. Rant to let Mr. Rant uh, have a PlayStation 4? <laughs> there you go. Readers, let me know your arguments on a piece of paper, please. Um, before uh, that... And donations, if you wish. <laughs> um, uh, if you want to use hashtag playground football uh, to help us answer this question, at Jack K Holt has come up with a 27-man list in order of who he thinks is going to get picked in the playground. If there were two team captains and they were like non-United players and they came in there to pick two teams, you know, first pick and all that stuff, uh, what order would the United players get picked in for a playground team? And he's got Wayne Rooney first and Robin Van Persie second. And I think that is Bandana's crazy talk. 
surely in the playground, the first player you're going to pick is Robin Van Persie, no? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, Rooney looks like a street footballer to me. Bit of a brawler. So I, I, I might go for Rooney. But, uh, you know, of course, on, uh, on, on current ranking at United, it, I guess it's Van Persie, isn't it? Although he doesn't have the same all-round game, but he does perform and Rooney doesn't always. Really, you know, you're just wrapping this playground football thing in what it is actually is a ranking system for United players. Yeah, he's got David De Gea at number three, which I think is an interesting choice because goalkeeper's slightly underrated in the playground. Um, but he could be an awesome rush goalie, De Gea, right? With that ball control. Yeah, but that's more like five-side football rather than playground football, isn't it? You know. Yeah, I guess. Unless we're saying rush keepers in the playground. It does happen, as you must surely remember being a rush keeper yourself. Oh, yes. Multi-talented. Uh, he's got Michael Carrick at number four. I think that's way high. I think Michael Carrick's talents would be underrated in the playground i think you're flashier your nannies your kagawas are getting picked up that list you need to do some tricks and you need to run at people in the playground that's uh, that's where it's at and uh, you need to stick the reducers in of course not too many United players can do that although you know Fellaini nearly did it on a fulham player the other week well anyway next on his list is uh Vidic and then jones so that's the reducers sorted he's got um he's got a Danny Welbeck at number seven, which I think is admirably high. I think I might just pick Danny first, to be honest, so I could have a little chat with him while we were picking the other players. But but I'm not sure that he would uh, rate above uh, some of these other lads in the playground. Very good. Yeah, well, you know, send us your playground 11s on Twitter and uh, we'll carry on the discussion there. Yeah, absolutely. Which, uh, I guess, brings us towards the end of this week's show, does it not? You know, uh, Yeah, I think it's time to not carry on the discussion anymore, isn't it? A massive, massive thanks uh, to Daniel Harris and uh, an enormous thanks to the listeners that have bought me and Ed PlayStation 4s between now and the next Rankcast. Wow. wow. So generous, lads. Awesome stuff. Uh, and we'll be back next week, I guess, to preview United's next fixture in the Premier League, look back on the international break. Uh, what it, what it was, you know, England playing Chilean Germany this week. Uh, much better games elsewhere. Uh, and uh, we'll see you all then. Absolutely. Have a lovely week, listeners. And try and cope with the absence of United in your hearts. Can Manchester United score? They always score. The big goal is coming up. Peter Schmeichel is forward. Can he score another in Europe? He's got one in Europe already. Beckham. In towards Schmeichel. It's come for Dwight York. Cleared, Giggs with a shot, Sheridan! Name on the trophy. Teddy Sheringham with 30 seconds of added time play has equalised for Manchester United. They are still in the European Cup. This is their year. They must be playing defensive. Schmeichel's not coming up for this one. Thinks he's done enough. Is this their moment? Beckham. Into Sheringham. And Solskjaer has won it! Manchester United have reached the promised land. The two substitutes have scored the two goals in stoppage time and the treble looms large.